The cost of new, often highly innovative cancer therapies is becoming a serious political issue in the United States, but has also been an issue in Europe for many years. Europeans feel that drug prices are too high, and trying to use one or more of them in combination, which is increasingly seen as the possible best approach, is often both politically and economically prohibitive. That's where my two guests today come in. Nathan Sigworth and Richard Bergstrom founded the innovative startup PharmaCCX, an independent third-party technology platform currently focused on the combination oncology drug market in Europe, working with both sides of the negotiation process. Richard and Nathan, it's a pleasure to speak with you this morning. You as well. Thank you, Dwayne. So why don't you tell me a bit about PharmaCCX and how you guys got started? This is Nathan. After college, I moved to India where I spent about a decade working in the fight against counterfeit drugs uh, with a company called PharmaSecure. My college roommate and I were working to get some unit level serial numbers on drug packages um, as cheap as possible to protect the supply chain. It was fascinating. Spent you know my first decade out of college in India working mostly with the generic pharma industry. And, and one of the things we, we did as part of this work is think about how could we leverage this data how could we leverage all the serial numbers on the drug packages? So we did some interesting things. We did some experiments with reimbursing patients based on registering the code on their package with their cell phone. And it got me thinking about the potential for new models of pricing. You know, is this something that, can we use technology? Um, meanwhile, uh, Richard and I met uh, when we were both speaking on a panel organized by the World Bank at a conference. Um, as, as usual, Richard was uh, head of FBI at the time. And as usual, some of the activists were giving him a hard time, you know, about drug prices of his member companies. They were throwing and, eggs at me, eggs and tomatoes, <laughs> almost. It's a common thing for Richard, by the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> and here I was, you know, working mostly with the generic farm industry. So I felt like I had a little bit of credibility to step in and, and help out my friend here. You know, so I said, look, we now have the technology. This isn't a zero-sum game anymore. It's not about payer or pharma company. It's not about patient or profit we have the technology to rethink drug pricing. We have the technology to do better differential pricing. Let's begin to use that. You know, let's figure out how to use technology to do better pricing that gets patients more drugs, that gets payers reasonable use of their budgets and then gets pharma revenue they need to continue to do research and development. It's in no one's best interest for patients not to get drugs. Everyone loses out if patients can't afford medicines. So, so I think that day, Richard and I became fast friends. We began a friendship and a collaboration uh, that's really grown to this day. Nathan was asking me, you know, what, what's, what's, what's really going on with pricing access and so on. And he was sort of my man in, on the East Coast because he, he lived and he moved back and lived in, in Boston, you know, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is sort of the capital of the whole industry, you know, and he was... You know, he came back with it with, with some great people and, and, and people from other sectors, you know, which led us to, 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 to this idea, which I'm sure we'll come back to. Yeah. So, Richard, how do you get from what was essentially something about parallel trade and drug identification? How do you make that connection with combination pricing? How did you make that link? Well, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all connected, actually, because, you know, uh, first we have a supply chain, which is pretty arcane, you know, uh, very little visibility. I mean, I used to, I used to ask this question when I'm, I'm teaching. So I teach some MBA classes and, and uh, sometimes at pharmacy schools, you know, senior people. So I said, who's, you know, who's, who's, who's the customer, I ask. And that's a good question to ask because that can take you in a number of directions, right? And you can start talking about value and, you know, outcomes and all that that will come to. But, but also, it, 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 I usually start by making the point, who pays the bills to the pharma company? And then people say, oh, you know, patients, no, not really, not to, at least not in Europe. Payers, no, not really. Actually, who pays the invoice? The wholesalers, okay? So it actually goes through, the money goes through the supply chain. Now, we're not really working on that now, Nathan and I, but, but, but just to answer your question, that the fact that there's very little visibility about actual usage, and this is something we've discovered, is that the precondition for many of the cool things that both pharma and payers want to do in 
shifting to focusing on outcomes and paying for outcomes is that there's no data. You know, for, for the pharma companies essentially only know when a pallet goes out, they know they've sold it, but really they haven't because it could happen that two years later, just before the shelf life expires, they get it all back yeah. <laughs> because it hasn't been used, right? So that's why companies like IQV and others, I mean, they do a great job. You know, they, they fill in need in, in sampling data and selling it back to the, to the industry. So, so the supply chain, both the security of it, reliability of it uh, against counterfeits, but also, you know, information about what's really going on, who's using what for whom, you know, it's still so much to do. We are so much behind, this sector is so much behind retail and so much behind everybody else writing just in time delivery and so on, you know. So there's clearly a link, Dwayne, I think, between supply chain and this, this, the things we're doing now. No, but if I could also interject, I think, Dwayne, Richard and I spent two years talking, noodling and meeting up in coffee shops and, and, and thinking there's some kernel here. There's got to be some way to use this new data ecosystem to solve these drugs. I mean, I was, I was an econ major in college, you know, and, and the invisible hand should be able to solve lots of problems, right? And we kept thinking about this. Richard shared with me this great article by David Greber and Srikant Vedinathan at BCG on sort of the challenge of combination pricing um, in particular. And, and, and we ended up really settling on this as, you know, a huge problem that was going to hit the oncology drug space and how do we price these combo therapies? And we kept focusing on how do we solve this? And it wasn't until um, we got together with some of our friends from the finance sector um, and, and they started saying, well, this is a problem that's been solved in other industries. You know, there are exchange mechanisms, there are trading methodologies, there are ways of doing, um, of exchanging contingent commitments that, um, that leverages data and allows these deals that seem intractable in pharma to actually get done and get settled, um, that, that we finally got inspiration. So a lot of what we're doing is really pulling industry arbitrage. It's pulling tried and, and tested tools from one, one industry into another. If you look at combination therapies historically, I mean, they really came into their own around the treatment for HIV and individually the component parts were very expensive. And it was, um, you know, really Peter Young at Glaxo Welcome, who's now at Papa's Capital, a very good venture firm, that sort of developed the first, you know, successful combination therapies for HIV. How are you taking the model that we had successfully in HIV, where essentially the drug companies were willing to bend a little bit on pricing, you know, find a compromise solution to develop, you know, sort of a, a, a single asset made of component parts? around cancer, which by themselves can be very, very expensive and very challenging. Also, a lot of the indications are quite small. How do you actually square that circle? You know, the, the pharma companies also have to be able to give a little bit, you know, give in a little bit on, on list prices and, and, and so on, you know, when you, when you sort of share the benefit with, with, uh, with, with other companies, right? It was easy with HIV in a way because uh, partly fewer companies, okay? And even two of them, two of the biggest ones, then Pfizer and GSK, came together in this Vive venture. Okay, and then there were a number of uh, IMI types that that you've talked a lot about on these podcasts, Dwayne. So I think the listeners are familiar. IMI type arrangements where you you you, you pool your, your assets. So in pediatrics, for instance, you know they work together and agree to do formulation development together. It's also a very strong activist and and patient community. Very strong. I think I've shared with you in the past, Dwayne, stories about how uh, there was one meeting I went to where the patient advocates had satellite footage on the facilities that we were actually building them, or they were not built, but they were not ready, you know, and so extremely sophisticated. I mean, actually, the patient community was telling the industry what to do to, to some extent, right? Now, the fragment, the, the patient community in the cancer space is unfortunately too fragmented to be a, to be a strong voice, you know? So I think that's, uh, that's, that's one reason. And now we have so many more companies, as I said, the HIV were few. Now you have basically everybody's in cancer because it's such a big need. There's such a, a big challenge for all of us to fix this. So everybody's in this space and companies that left oncology are back. GSK uh, gave up their oncology division to the in trade, trade, the trade with the vaccine. You know, uh, 
and now everybody's in oncology, you know. So that's another reason, Dwayne, why it's diff more difficult to do IMI type consortias when, when, and it's all these permutations. Everyone's combining drugs with each other's. It, it's like it's like it's like. So you have to find some kind of tool, you know. And the inspiration that we got was from from Wall Street, and I'm sure Nathan want to talk about that. You know how we somehow build on what other sectors have done and to bring that into to pharma. Nathan, do you want to say yeah. something on that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so I mean, basically, you know, in in Europe, you know, we use this cost effectiveness for pricing, right? So, let's say a drug extends someone's life one year, you know, gets reimbursed, say, a hundred thousand euros. Two years, two hundred thousand euros, right? Um, so, what if two drugs each extend someone's life one year, each are reimbursed a hundred thousand euros on their own? But together, they would extend, as a combination, they would extend someone's life a year and a half. You know, then you have this, this weird problem in an otherwise elegant value-based pricing world where um, the two drugs that cost 200,000 euros don't fit within the 150,000 euro reimbursement for that 1.5 year um, additional years of life. So there has to be a different price for those therapies in combination than on their own, if they're going to be cost effective, according to, you know, the, the HTA guidelines, it's no one's fault. It's not pharma's fault. It's not the payer's fault. It's just the system is broken in this weird edge case um, in an otherwise elegant system. You know, this, this is contrasted with the U S market where it's a little bit of a wild West, right? I mean, you get the price you negotiate, you know, either if you need the two drugs and your insurance company will pay, you'll get the two drugs. If, you know, if your insurance company won't pay because you have lousy insurance, you won't. But in Europe, where there's this very carefully constructed, somewhat elegant concept of value-based pricing, we see it break down. And so what we're really trying to do is find a way such that in those particular cases, in those combo situations, where the payer is willing to reimburse and the pharma companies should be willing to accept reimbursement that's different than the drugs and monotherapy, provided it doesn't affect the prices of those drugs in, in therapy. And so monotherapy. So what, what needs to happen is the exchange of contingent commitments. I'll do this if you do that. You know, I'd be willing to come down in price if the other company comes down in price. Now the drug companies can't coordinate on pricing in many cases in these combo therapies because they're otherwise competitors. But if there's a mechanism by which they can enter secret contingent commitments that can become binding if the other contingent commitments of the other parties uh, trigger it, then, then we can actually work with something. Then we can actually you know, come up with a solution. And, and this is a concept that's been used in, uh, in trading systems. You know, if they get down to this price, I'll buy this many, you know, assets uh, in the finance world. And so we're, we're bringing that architecture into these pharma negotiations and then settling it based on the data of what happens in the market. Now, you have multiple challenges, particularly around the European systems. In France, you know, new oncology products are taking 530 days to come yeah. to reimbursement, even after approval and there's no guarantee that even at that point they'll be accessible i mean we're seeing huge access issues around europe and this is going to be exacerbated by the financial constraints that are being caused by covid 19. the other problem is you may have drugs that are you know it's not just you know you in your example you used a hundred thousand drug and another hundred thousand euro drug but what if it's rituximab which is you know now a generic monoclonal antibody combined with say a checkpoint inhibitor where you have really radically divergent price structures. I mean, how do you deal with those sort of asymmetries with pricing? This is sad that we are in this situation because science is really delivering, okay? And as you say, Dwayne, there are huge days and maybe sometimes you don't even have any access as a, as a, as a patient. But, you know, I've worked my whole professional life in this sort of in-between, essentially, in between the private sector developing, investing and developing and then on the other side, you have the public side with approvals and payers again. Okay? And of course, there are a few extremists on both sides, you know, that don't really understand or don't like the, the, the other side, if I use that term. 
but there's a lot of goodwill. Okay. I mean, I've met a few people, by the way, uh, as a tangent, Nathan and I had a call with a US PBM and Nathan started in his intro saying, oh, it's a problem that it takes uh, a year to agree a price. And this guy said, <laughs> chief pharmacy officer. So he was a pharmacist like me. He said, oh no, that's fantastic. The longer it takes, the better we save money. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I don't, I, but I don't hear yeah. that, Dwayne. I don't hear that very often. Okay, I, I'm not saying all PBMs are like that, but in Europe, I, having spent all these years meeting with with payers and regulators, you know, I don't hear that. I don't hear it deliberate. One of the things about Europe that I find really refreshing is there's the sense for if there is value, there's a willingness to pay. You know, and I think some of the conversations with PBMs, it's just about you know, the lowest possible price, how low can we go? There's no sense of, you know, we get value for, 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 for money. And I think there, the, what gives me hope is yes, there are these challenges. Yes, there are these delays. And, and I've heard the payers, you know, tell me, look, my only negotiating lever is delay. Give me some more negotiating levers. Give me some more dimensions of negotiation so I can do something other than simply delay. And that's really what we're trying to work on is, is give them some other tools so that we can really come to win-win-win deals. But um, at least in Europe, there's the sense of, you know, show me how this benefits the population and, and we'll reimburse that in some fair way. And I think that's something that we in the industry can begin to work with. Right. I think there's a lot that needs to be done, but the starting point is there. This common appreciation of value for society in these therapies. I, I agree that that was the case, certainly until 2014, 2015, in the introduction of Savaldi and Harvoni. I, I do think if you look at CAR T therapies now, there are many many countries in Europe where you still cannot get reimbursed for CAR-T. Yeah, fair enough. And there's no question that for second line relapsed lymphoma and acute lymphoblastic leukemia, you know, that's your only hope. And these are really hard cases. And, you know, 30, 40% of those cases are curative. Yeah. The problem that you have is you're talking a micro market of an already small market. I mean, the entire global market for ALL is about 700 patients a year. I mean, your incidence rate for DLBCL B-cell lymphoma is seven patients per 100,000. These are very small indications. These were very hard drugs to develop. And so consequently, you know, small market, huge investment, big price. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just the way the math works, unfortunately. <laughs> there ain't, ain't no way around that. Well, well, Dwayne, well, I mean, this is one of our, our struggle, right? I mean, so we are here, Richard and me and our team, which is all these experts from pharma, from finance, people, people from the payer side, like Carol Longson, people from the pharma side, like Patrick Schneider, Walter Holtzel. Um, and, and we're really trying to stay independent of either side and provide the tools that help the parties get the deals across the table. Now we can't we can't do more than that, right? We, sure. You can lead a horse to water, right? But I think, you know, I think what we have to recognize is to do our job properly, we have to be a little bit reserved in terms of, you know, not putting our fingers on the scale, but doing everything we possibly can to help there being a level be there, be a level playing field and provide tools to increase. But I, I completely agree with you. I think there's, there's behavior change that needs to change in addition to, um, in, t in addition to just tools. Maybe Richard can, can speak no. more to this. No, but, I, but, but it's clearly there is a need for, you know, honest brokers. In, 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 our, in our case, you know, we've been very much inspired by uh, what was done in, in Switzerland, you know, here, you know, as you know, Dwayne, I live, both Nathan and I live in Switzerland now. But, you know, the Swiss colleagues here at the association, they, they did an experiment or project a few years ago where they were brokering. So, you know, imagine it was FPF, Natalie Moll or my friend Francois Bouvier was sitting and brokering between the, the, the two companies and a payer. Uh, and they did that twice, I think. Uh, but then they said, we can't go on like this because it was very complicated and, you know, painful, you know, and why would the association argue with its own members? You know, so it's not sustainable, you know, and you can't do this manually. So very much inspired by that, that, that some tools for, for actually enabling these, these deals to be made, as, as Nathan said, you know, in competition, it all prevents competitors to, from, from sitting and talking about price unless they have some formal um, 
co-marketing agreement or something. So we were very much inspired by that. And then I, more recently, I was also very much inspired by a former boss of mine, Clive Minowell, who recruited me to, to Roche once upon a time. He broke a fantastic deal with, with the NHS for his cardiovascular drug, which, which was developed by his company, the medicines company, which he sold to Novartis for, 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 a, for a big sum of money. But he broke the deal, which was outcome-based, you know, that the NHS would, you would find the patients. And now, Duane, this is the stuff that you and I get excited about. Find the patients through data, through real-world data, health records and, you know, various other data sources, you know, like the stuff that Eden, Eden is, is now uh, doing, right, which you, you've reported on, okay? So you find the patients, you don't go through the physicians, you don't go through the GPs, you find the patients that are, let's say, treatment resistant or, or something. You identify them, you treat them, and you pay for the results. Okay, so it's a whole different approach. So th there is a need for this type of nonpartisan in-between brokering with possibly in our case with technical tools. I mean, if it's a, that deal that Clive made probably didn't need a platform for that, you know, but if you're gonna do hundreds of deals a year for let's say in oncology for combination pricing or, or even indication pricing, having different prices for different users, you can't do that manually. But, but the, the, in a sense, the notion is that there is somebody neutral in between who facilitates this. Uh, in our case, it's a, a tool, te technical tool, you know, which enables scaling. Where is this all headed, right? The limit is an N of one, patient population of one, right? And, and already we see, particularly on the payer side, negotiators and people who, who are administrating these managed entry and other creative agreements overwhelmed with just the workload to get these deals done. If you do some sort of creative outcomes-based deal, someone has to track those outcomes. Someone has to, if you're doing differential pricing by population, someone has to figure out what that population is. It's not that there hasn't been creativity. There's been immense creativity in the sector, in new types of deals and creative dimensions of negotiation. It's, it's a question of infrastructure. You know, how do we get it from being, from having to ration these creative deals to having it be something that's widespread? And if we look at the pipelines, if we look at all the incredible science that's coming out of the research and development in pharma, it's, it's all very unique therapies. And then if you look at um, diagnostics, we're getting better and better at pinpointing how's a patient going to respond to a treatment. What that means is we're going to end up having to do deals with N of one in terms of patients and their particular outcome. And that's something that can't be done manually. There needs to be an infrastructure to do that. And so as we look toward the future, what we're really trying to do at CCX is, is begin to build the foundation for us to begin to, you know, to, to take manual trading from the Wall Street analogy and turn it into electronic trading. You know, let, let's put in place the parameters by which we do a deal and then let the computers do the hard administration work, you know, to, um, to, to, to settle and, and do these deals, you know, even down to a patient population of one. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. But one of the other challenges you're going to face, outcomes-based deals are often in violation and contravene current case law. Sure. And regulatory, you know, rules that are on the books. Are you working with governments to try and get them to actually change their own regulations to facilitate not only brokering a combination price between the, the, the players, but also to allow a reimbursement mechanism that would then function in the context of we will pay on performance in this combination approach? Yeah, no, that, that is that's a great question. Dwayne. And I think that's where we're more than just a tech company, right? I mean, you know, we're backed by some of the premier technology investors, um, Excel partners, Atlantic Labs. They're used to all these software companies and tech companies. And like, great, your technology is built. Let's, let's deploy it everywhere. But it's not so simple. It's about there's places where we can get started. There's deals that we can get started on and, you know, combination therapies in places like Sweden and Switzerland, you know, where, where things are getting started. But then there's also in some countries a need to have legislative change 
um, you know, new wine skins for the new wine, so to speak. There needs to be a whole system change. And yeah. we're in it for the long haul. And, and that's why, you know, as we've been building this team, you know, it's been people like Richard Bergstrom, you know, people like Carol Longson, people who have a lot of deep experience and insight into this that that I've added to the to my team in order to navigate over the medium to long term the system change that needs to happen because it's not just building a technology and switching a switch it's really you know you have to get started but then it's about working and collaborating with the stakeholders to change the system right the price of a drug you know i think a lot of this i think is a little in the media particularly simplistic it's not a price of a drug you know, it's, it's what price, right? And we, if we get to a world where everyone has access to the medicine they need at the price that makes sense for them and their, their payer and the pharma company, we're going to be operating in a world with multiple prices, you know, and, 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 and maybe, and this gets to some of the systemic change that you talked about. I mean, there's certainly pushback on that. You know, why isn't it the same price for everyone? You know, but I think let, let's look at, Let's look at other industries. Um, you know, what if, you know, pharma today is operating as, you know, like an airline industry that only only sells business class seats. One price, right. And the rest of the airplane is empty. You know, and so there's so much being missed out. There's people who can't get flights and there's airlines that aren't maximizing revenue because all they're selling is business class, right? And let's bring... And this is the same issue as this, you know, why you know, tiered pricing around the world, you know, everybody should go through for giving as many drugs to as many people as possible. And you should accept that Europe and the US will have to pay higher prices than middle-income countries and low-income countries. But yeah, so Richard, you're we've back. never been able to get, we never be get, we never got to that, uh, that model. So what have you said now, Nathan? Picking up on what Nathan was just saying, if you have a delay of 530 days, essentially what you're doing is you're increasing or at least decreasing the time until you hit generic. So in that sense, you are lowering the cost curve, at least, you know, through the negotiation process. So there is a bit of segment and pricing that's being done through the back door. And at what cost? Absolutely. And at what cost, right? The cost of patients' lives, right? So the fact that the only lever that payers have is delay, it's terrifying. I mean, it's it's the cost of patients and their access to treatment. There's got to be other ways. There's got to be other tools that you know, even the pharma industry's incentive should be aligned with providing the payer with additional negotiating tools that aren't so detrimental, both to pharma revenue and to society. Go ahead, Richard, please. So I think there are two things needed. Uh, one is, and this is now happening, is that payers have realized that there's something called competition. I mean, we knew they knew it for generics. You know, some countries in Europe. Uh, started very early on to to capitalize on this and creating this headroom for innovation, saving on off-patent medicines, and you can use that on, on new new medicines. Okay, so UK, the Nordic countries, others were were faster, and as part of you know during the financial crisis, the Euro crisis, you know, also Southern Europe sort of took those reforms. So now generic prices are, are very low, which is great. Okay, now biosimilars the same thing. You know, uh, you really leverage. Uh, competition and, and now the, the, the payers have learned you know and we've seen that uh, Dwayne you and I've talked a lot about this you know with Hep C and so on you see really how they leverage inspired by the US I think you know you leverage price competition between uh, medicines that are sufficiently similar okay they're not exactly the same but in the bigger scope as long as everything is being provided for as long as you have choice as physicians you know you can have a first choice drug that you know you get a fantastic discount on so they've learned that now the second thing that's needed is to realize that products are not products it's not back to the comment about supply chain you know we have to price that's attached to a package whereas that could be used for for tens of of of, of different uses you know in subsets of patients uh, quality indications uh, and you know, I heard CEOs now um, already last year at JP Morgan, which was in person. <laughs> this year was a bit weird, <laughs> but you know, still they talk about, oh, you shouldn't view this product as a product. This is a platform of multiple uses. Okay, well, you know, but the price is per product, so you need tools to actually start dishing up, you know, a product into different uses. 
And that's of benefit for both sides because you can get you know, maximum volumes and maximum patient benefit. And at the same time, you can have different prices. It's a bit scary though. I mean, pharma is worried that the payers are going to have the upper hand and you know payers are always afraid that pharma is more clever and better prepared and you know they're, 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 they're smart suits and powerpoint slides you know that they're gonna they're gonna come up with something that is bad for us you know so it's about trust at the end of the day but anyhow i think those two tools are needed Dwayne. if we look at the geopolitical situation right now we we just had the trump administration on their way out the door pass what's called most favored nations now we discussed this two years ago when this was sort of in the offing, and we thought there would be no way that the U.S. would do this, but in fact they have. And essentially now, despite the belief that, you know, drugs in Europe are very expensive, the fact is when you look at, you know, prices paid in the U.S., particularly through Medicare Part B, C, and D, compared to Europe, you see that there's a 50, 60, 70% lower pricing in, in Europe on average over time. The U.S. taxpayers and the government feels that this is an unfair competitive advantage for Europe. And so now there's legislation to actually try and force companies to raise prices in Europe. And this is through the legislation called Most Favored Nations, where Medicare Part B will now implement the lowest common price within similar OECD countries based on GDP levels. There's a belief in the U.S. Congress that Europe is free riding and they're trying to force prices up. How do you see your role at Pharma CCX, we are really wedded to value-based pricing, and I, I, I say that you know the only bias we have because we try really not to take sides here between pharma and payers. We we really understand both sides. I, I don't even like the word sides, but okay, let's let's put it that way. Two parties, okay. So, but we are we are biased in in our belief in that the starting point must be value. So whether you talk about having different prices for different uses, indications, or whether you, uh, you know, set the price for a combination that has to be shared between two companies, it has to be, its starting point must be value. And we are so fortunate in Europe, and I say that we are fortunate that we have an institutional framework for this. It's not perfect, you know, it may be too rigid and these fixed thresholds is it's it's a problem particularly now with the combinations okay but and it, it reminds me of an experience a few years ago i met the whole board of one of the of the u.s sort of biggest companies and i and i was asked a question about the debate about the pricing and hepatitis c and survival and everything and i i said well you know we we we, uh, we have to start with saying that uh, it's worth, it's, even if it's worth 50,000 euros for a course of treatment, you know, doesn't mean that that's what you have to pay because there's a question about volume and there's a question about price competition. And then I was interrupted by one of the board members and said, well, what do you mean with, it's worth it. And I think I've also said something about everybody agrees that it's actually worth 50,000, but why would we pay that if we can have a lower price? I mean, our friend, Carol Longson is actually working with Nathan and I now. She said that uh, many times. Okay, so then I, I realized, oh my God, there, there's no notion of that. There's no mechanism. There's no, there's no framework for agreeing value in the United States. At least it wasn't back then. Maybe it's better now. I'm not sure. I haven't been there for a year for obvious reasons. Uh, maybe you have a perspective on that, Dwayne. Uh, but but so I, I believe I believe somehow that if we can if we can strengthen the role of HTA. Yes, I said that also. <laughs> Strengthen the role of health economics and have a sound uh, methodological approach here. I know there's some colleagues at Amgen that have also been looking at very interesting research, looking at whether you can actually calculate, you know, the attribution of value partly as, a, as an input here, you know. So I think by, by really hanging on to what we have in Europe and rather revising and updating that, I think maybe the US eventually could could take on that because I think... It has to be about that, right? Yeah, I, I joke with my friends in the States. L let's not go single payer until Richard and I solve this value-based pricing <laughs> thing in Europe. You know, let's just just hold off a, a few years until until I, we we, uh, we don't have to ration medicines, right? I, mean, I think I yeah, I think sing clever <laughs> single payers that have the right motivations and actually can leverage markets. 
That's a perfect combination, isn't it? Yeah, Dwayne, yeah. Dwayne, Dwayne, do, do you agree with that? Is that too radical? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'm not I, mean I have a couple hats on right now. Um, again, I'm supposed to moderate. I'm not supposed to participate. But uh, uh, let, I, I'll say this. I mean, there have been issues around ICER. There are a lot of comments on ICER in the U.S. There was a desire, I think, a couple, three years ago that ICER should yeah. take over that role in the U.S. ICER is funded mostly by the insurance companies and the PBMs. That causes a conflict of interest. So there are a lot of people who are looking at that saying, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. You know, one person's value is another person's cost. You know, again, our, our Savaldi example, I mean, we, you know, Richard, we published, we priced the pathway. If you didn't use Savaldi, I mean, let's be honest, pegylated interferon was a terrible drug. I'm sorry to our friends at Merck. It was a terrible drug. And, it, you know, half the time it didn't work. One out of five people had required a liver transplant within 10 years. The alternative pathway cost $250,000. And that's priced at a 5% discount rate. So if you're looking at, you know, 80000 now versus half a million dollars over the next 10 years, that's a bargain. If you tell any investor that, they'll say, push it down and I'll keep buying till you run out of paper. That's the reality. But the problem is 80000 was seen as eye-poppingly too expensive. And that's the issue. Yeah, Nathan. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a great point, Dwayne. And I think, I mean, as you and Richard discussed on one of your earlier podcasts, it's not just about the pricing. It's also about the planning. Right. You know, it's about giving the payer enough of a heads up. And that's why we're beginning to deploy our technology, not just for negotiations, but for planning, you know, for a pharma company, begin using this internally, run games against your own team, you know, see what's possible, payer, begin, you know, running scenarios internally, see what might be coming down the pike, because it's not just about the negotiation at that moment, it's about preparing, it's about having the budget, not being you know, caught off guard, suddenly having a very cost effective, but very expensive treatment. What do you do? You know, you need to prepare your budgets accordingly. There's more than just one stakeholder. It's not the payer. Essentially, you have patients, you have companies, and you have payers. And and often there's a competing interest between those three bodies. How do you balance the competing interest between the various stakeholders, particularly in Europe? Because let's face it, medicine and HTAs are political bodies. By definition, if you're paid by the government, you're a bureaucrat and they will respond to politics. So how does your model deal with those competing interests from the various stakeholder groups? I, th- so, I think I, yeah, it's a great question. If I, if I, if I may first, no, go ahead. because, you know, what is it? I mean, I have been in a way honored and, and sort of maybe penalized by working on these vaccines right now. Okay. So I, I'm, I was drafted by the Swedish government to, 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 to help out with the vaccines, and I'm part of the EU, EU team, okay? Is it, is it a work release program, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was even labeled one of my old friends in the Norwegian government. He said, Richard, you are now a payer. <laughs> uh, and, and, and we are actually, but it's really fascinating, two, two things here. When everybody is focusing on one goal, I, I've been saying this is like the Apollo program for the pharma industry, okay? Supported by the government, heavily supported by governments, both in BARDA type money, IMI type money up front, and I would say, you know, advanced purchase commitments, money on the table, okay? So the government plays a very important role as a strong, strong, strong payer. But, you know, gee, look at this. Look at this. Who would have believed this? From nothing, you know, people say, oh, it'll take 10 years to develop a vaccine, you know, 10 months. And we have very, very effective and safe vaccines, and they're being deployed now in hundreds of millions, you know. Okay, and it's being rolled out as we speak, you know, on several of them, different platforms, you know. Now, so, so that's the first thing. If we just focus on one common target and, and articulate that, Dwayne, that I think yeah, 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 you do, that was sort of part of your question. So if we can do that for cancer, and later on, even for dementia, you know, once we have good treatments you know, and, and diagnostics and supportive tools, okay, but don't cancel. And here in Europe, you know, Commissioner President uh, van der Leyen is, is very committed to this, and she has this cancer plan. You know, so if you rally around that and sort of think, well, if we did this for this pandemic, why don't we do it for cancer? And the other side of this uh, experience I have now, Dwayne, with the vaccines, is that people have realized, and payers, colleagues have realized that this can't really be cost plus for everything. And you know, your listeners are familiar with the debate, okay? Because there's an acceptance for why some companies say, we're not going to make any profit, and we're not going to make any loss. We're happy to do this. You know, we want this pandemic to go away. It's not good for anybody. 
okay? AstraZeneca, J&J. And then you have others, Moderna, BioNTech, CureVac, others that have been borrowing money from, you know, first from venture capital and then from Wall Street and so on. And, you know, then it's a different business model. You can't suddenly say we're not going to make any money on, on this. But they're very reasonable. I mean, look, we're going to pay in Sweden, we're going to pay on average 15 euros per vaccinated person. What's that? There's nothing. A liter of, of, of disinfectant costs more, I've realized. So, you know, so I think there is an acceptance drain. What comes out of this, I don't think in any way this is going to result in cost plus for everything. No, but it, 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 it has opened people's eyes to the fact that you have to have a sustainable innovation system. So, so I think very happy. We should reflect on this, Dwayne. Let's bring in a couple of other people for maybe a podcast in a, in a few months from now to reflect, you know, on 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 the, on the learnings. Well, I mean, one of the things, Richard, that certainly comes out of this. I mean, if you look at Pfizer, obviously, with BioNTech, they had the RNA technology ready to go. Pfizer's been market leading in pneumococcal vaccines now for you know almost a decade with Prevnar 13 and now Prevnar 21. And they were just looking for an excuse or an opportunity to roll out the new platform. And, and essentially what they did, and you know, for those folks who've listened to the podcast series and have certainly known the work that you and I have done together, Richard, I mean, Pfizer, this was an adaptive pathway. Whether people want to admit it or not, yes. it was an adaptive pathway. Yes. And, you know, the the commitments that were made from the government for a condition of sale certainly were an, were an incentive, but you still have to get the product to market to buy it, you know, and someone put down several billion dollars. I'd say the challenge that we're seeing now, though, and you, you saw this in the media where Belgium's capacity was cut by 40,000 units. They were expecting 100,000. They're only getting 60,000. This goes to the other problem again, which goes back to my infrastructure question and some of the competitive issues between Europe and the United States broadly and geopolitically. I mean, again, if we look at the biotech sector, 70% of new biotech products are being developed and marketed in the United States. There's real issues here, knock-on effects about the lower pricing and the sort of time-to-market issues in Europe that are causing infrastructure problems and long-term competitiveness issues, which are even playing out in the vaccine space. How do you guys help enhance the competitiveness of Europe, or at least help get more stuff to be developed here so that there's more competitiveness here, because Europe is starting to lose out a bit. First, I, you know, I, I just have to say, though, that when it comes to comparing the US and, and, and Europe, and, and, and sorry, Nathan, that it'll be about vaccines for two more minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's very tolerant with me. <laughs> Europe is actually... Um, and this is, and I say this, I have two feelings about this. You know, Europe is actually buying vaccines for three to four times our population. Okay. Now, while, you know, that can be shared with other people. So we are actually over-investing tremendously. Okay. And, and the US, as far as I know from just the other day, at least, you know, has vaccines for 200 million people. The EU has for 1.5 million or soon two. Right. So, so we are a bit behind because we took full regulatory approval and we didn't want the, the emergency authorization, right? So we have a few weeks behind the UK and, and, and the US. But also what I've discovered is the, the, the strength of, of Europe. Look at all these manufacturing. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, Dwayne. I, I can't share these things. They're confidential. But I get these maps from the companies or where they're sourcing things from. And there are all these firms I've never heard of. I mean, they're probably maybe Pfizer back in the days or some other company or Pharmacia or something. Yeah. But, you know, gee, the, the capacity in Europe for both for innovation, these two first, I mean, the three mRNA vaccines, two are German. Yeah. Wow. You know, and we have this fantastic company, Valneva, which is European on, on whole, whole virus. Uh, and uh, you have uh, another uh, adenovirus vector, Reitera in, in Rome. You know, you've got Oxford, you know. So I think mm, mm, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure the innovative capacity in terms of actually turning these the science into products and successful products. I agree with you that you know we are really behind. Europe is behind. We don't have the kind of access to capital. That, I mean that's the thing. The money's in the U.S., but you may have factories and researches in 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 Europe. And I really hope we can somehow revert to some really truly global spirit today. I hate this geopolitics, you know, and I think, you know, for our sector, which is always planned on thinking global, you know, if the best guys are in Shanghai, let's do it in Shanghai, best factories over there, let's do it there, you know, 
let's not think about geographies, but unfortunately, unfortunately, we are in that era now. Just one final point of vaccines is people have been looking at closing down manufacturing, not building it. Consolidation, not expansion. And we're sort of paying a price for that now. Let's face it. One of the points of the RNA vaccine was this was supposed to be a vaccination vector against cancer. Yes. This was supposed to be a new treatment line, but no one was willing to invest in it. That's it. I mean, that's why RNA was invested was as an anti-cancer agent. Yeah. Do you see this maybe as a tool to try and enhance that going forward? Yeah, yeah I think I think so. And sort of back to to pharmacy CX is is that I think you know we 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 just want sort of piece of the puzzle here, you know. But I think. In, in this in this uh, space in the middle between the two parties, you know there has to be enhanced uh, dialogue and and trust building, uh, like like what happened with the vaccines. Okay, that okay, we need this together. Let's do it together. If we get that spirit also in the oncology space and elsewhere, that's where we can help. And we we do that by brokering. I mean, I've been essentially doing Nathan and I been doing that shuttle diplomacy <laughs> i feel like a diplomat yeah. you know because i talked to the industry association in one country and they in, in the industry said oh the payer would never agree to that and then i go to the payer and they say oh yeah sure no we can agree to that but pharma will never agree to that you know <laughs> and eventually eventually <laughs> you know we we bring yeah we bring them together it's been very slow okay i mean i have to admit that you know the pandemic has slowed everything down people are focusing on other things but so i think i think indeed once we, you know, get, I mean, CAR-T that you've done a lot of research on also doing, you know, it, we're in the early days, okay. It's often like that. Take HIV. What was the first drug? It was called, what was it called? The, AZT. No. AZT. AZT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had, you had, and there was even something else, but you, 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 it, it's very often that the very first few things that come in a space are not the best. So CAR-T, I think, is here to stay, okay. Whether it's allogenic, where, you know, we look forward to that, you know, or, or, Autologous, you know, and and now and now with mRNA, fantastic technology, you know. So I'm super excited, and and I, being in being having these new tools for facilitating micro level deals for particular products and combinations, and also a framework for, you know, Nathan. I remember we we were talking to our friend Richard Torbett in the UK, who negotiated the statutory agreement, the the, the you know PPRS kind of new version. You know, and tools for, as Nathan said, your tools for planning, for predicting, looking at the same numbers, you know. So I think, you know, at the largest scale, the, 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 the technology we've developed, the platform we've developed can be used in the aggregate as well. So yeah, I think so that, that we can facilitate that, right, Nathan? Yeah. So, so look, once you put negotiations on an exchange infrastructure, you can create derivatives, right? And I think, which, which becomes very interesting down the road. We c- you can offload risk. You can involve financial intermediaries. You can do you know you can bridge the gap between really long term benefits and really short term revenue requirements for a drug. Um, you can take the risk of hitting a cap in a framework agreement, and you can offload that to some reinsurance company. You know, so, so there's a lot of, it's not just getting the deals done. It's not just settling those deals. It's not just getting down to patient level um, uh, agreements. It's also what we can build on top of that in terms of the creative hedging capabilities to really, um, to really address the market. Now, this is really next level stuff that I don't usually talk about. You know, this is 10 10 years, 15 years down the road, I think, in terms of the pharma industry and, and uh, market access and, and reimbursements. But this is the natural evolution of any marketplace. And as we try to bring the infrastructure from Wall Street to helping get these deals done in pharma market access, you know, we have a lot to look forward to. One other comment that you made about the divergent interests. You know, I think it's important to emphasize, and we've seen this in the vaccine negotiations that Richard has been part of, even though there are divergent interests, you know, most of the people who got into this work on all sides got into this to help patients. Yeah. And I think and it's the same people, by the way. Same people. <laughs> I ran into, I ran into all these old that. colleagues. Yeah, it's such well, a small world. But I think it's a, it's time that we start thinking about how do we harness market forces 
to really drive creativity and win-win situations. And I think, you know, if I could sum up everything we're doing and our collaborators are doing and our colleagues and our, our, our clients and the stakeholders that we're engaged with, it's how do we put in place the infrastructure and the tools that harness capitalism, yeah. ha- harness the invisible hand, harness economic forces to really solve some of these intractable um, these challenges in, in drug pricing. If you just had one recommendation that you would like to make to improve the situation, what would it be? Sure. I think it's just increasing the dimensions of market access deals, giving people more tools, more creativity, and uh, so that we can negotiate more than just on price and volume. You know, but let's expand the creativity of these negotiations. Let's make it easier for the administration burden so that you know all the creative thinking that everyone's thinking about in terms of getting these deals done can actually be implemented. So I think it's really increasing the dimensions of market access negotiations. Richard, from your perspective, what one thing do you think we could do? I think this ecosystem of, of call it market access, sort of a step after the regulatory approvals and to actually preaching patience, okay? That space has to be somehow rearranged. It is being rearranged. If you think about the whole real world data space, uh, which you cover a lot, Wayne, and you do your own research, you know, that's, that's happening. And, and you see how companies are moving. I think we mentioned IQVIA before, you know, I mean, they started off as IMS with having sales data to, you know, guide and reward, you know, sales reps. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, long gone, it feels like, you know. Now it's really about real-world data and, and, and helping both sides, you know, making the right deals. You know? So you see how people are changing, you know, how the advisors, the high-level consultants, you know, the McKinsey's and the BCG's are also embracing, you know, the new science and the new tools, right? So what we do is that we ask, we ask them a little part of that that's missing. Uh, there, there, there are not enough of people in between, that try and broker things in our case, not manually so much, but rather with a, with a, with a platform. And I, I've used the analogy. It's like the bookshelf, you know, you rearrange the books a little bit, you know, uh, and, and if there's an empty space, you know, it's going to be taken up by some other book, but there's a sliver there. There is one space which is empty and that's us, you know? So, so we, we, we aspire to, to work with, with all the you know, companies I mentioned and payers in pharma. Um, and, and I hope that, you know, once things eventually return back to some normality and people can start to be progressive again. This is what I lack the most in this pandemic is, is the progressivity of change and thinking new and doing new things, you know, because we are busy with the, just fulfilling the orders. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's what I, that's what I, that's what I hope to Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. It was uh, great speaking to you, Nathan. Have a good day. Likewise, it was great, uh, great talking with you, Dwayne. And Richard, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you in person soon. <laughs> well, we can only hope. So, thanks a lot for your time, guys. Mm-hmm.